This morning I'd ask you to follow along in God's Word as I read once more from the book of Matthew, the end of chapter 12. We've been studying this gospel for many weeks now, and there's a lot of it to go. I'm determining we're going to take a break. We're at a good spot for a break as subject matter changes somewhat at chapter 13. With the summer season, I'm going to be looking at some other short subjects with you through the summer, at least through July. But uh, we'll stop here with this consideration today and then hopefully pick up again later in the summer with Matthew 13. Listen as I read from God's Word. Last time we saw Christ in conflict with the Pharisees calling him a devil, saying he worked by the devil's work and so on. A very sharp controversy going on. And that conversation with the same people is continuing as I read now from Matthew 12. This is God's Word, beginning at verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, It goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. Then let me add this short word of a very similar occasion found in chapter 16. It is a different occasion, but much the same thing happening. Matthew 16, verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when the evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. This is the Word of God. God is certainly not in show business. God is not in show business. He's not a competitor 
on the American Idol program, singing his songs and subjecting them to Simon Cowell's satirical criticism. God has never starred in a Hollywood movie. He doesn't vie for celebrity status with Madonna or Matt Damon. And God will never appear on a television special featuring a disappearing elephant of the sort that David Copperfield, the great magician, is able to produce in his programs. God is not in show business. And yet some of Jesus' contemporaries invited him to perform for them, not unlike a carnival juggler. It was the very people who so vehemently rejected him that argued if only Jesus would get a hold of and value the implement of show business, he could have had a very different kind of success, they thought. Well, humanity's sinful thinking still argues today that God would be received better if only he would perform more wonders tuned to our bidding and make them visible to the whole world, perhaps even on the evening news broadcast, something that could be replayed on the IMAX screens of America. The deceitfulness of the human heart says if God would just do something more, more spectacular, more exactly in tune with my personal needs, then I'd be better able to trust him and acknowledge who he is. Well, the truth that we see in our text of Scripture this morning is that stubborn unbelief flourishes right under the shadow of abundant evidence of a miraculous kind left and right and center. The resurrection of the crucified Jesus, we're told, is God's great historic marvel. An undeniable sign that was delivered once for all time in the sight of many witnesses to prove that God is no longer in show business if he ever was. He needs no more splendid signs to prove anything new to you. Today I ask you to look at Matthew 12, 38 and following to consider first of all this human demand for signs from God. It's a perennial thing. It happened then and it's happening all the time today. Lord, just do something spectacular, please. Look how politely these enemies of Christ came. Teacher, they called him. Now bear in mind, these are the same people who who had just said, we just looked at it last week, you're working by the power of the devil. And now they say, oh, teacher. Obviously, they were mocking him. They did not regard Jesus as a true teacher from God. They addressed him with a sneer. In Matthew 16, 1, the secondary text I read this morning, the request came another time from an even larger group of Pharisees and Sadducees. And and interestingly there, the Sadducees were the party who said, there are no miracles. Miracles aren't even possible. But they too came and said, oh, teacher, if you would just perform a sign in the heavens. I wonder what they had in mind. Did they want the sun to reverse its path? Maybe he could tell it to come up in the west tomorrow. 
Did they think that perhaps he'd give a command and the moon would turn green and pink alternately? What if a million stars aligned themselves in the night sky to, to spell out in, in Hebrew letters brightly seen and read by people of that time, Jesus is my truly beloved Son. What do you think they would have done in reaction to that? Why they would have looked up and said, isn't that curious? I wonder whatever made those stars line up in that odd way. They asked for something that they had no intention of responding to. These same people had already decided to kill Jesus. He would not do tricks at their demand, not because he lacked the power to do it, but because it is contrary to the nature of God to use sensationalism to satisfy the whims of hostile people who have no relationship of faith in him. You see this early in the Gospel of Mark. There's that time when Jesus came to his hometown of Nazareth. And that was the place where the, the saying came from, the prophet has little honor in his own country. And he spoke there. There was very little response. And it said, Jesus could not do many miraculous works there because of their unbelief. Now, could not there reads the same as would not. The climate for supernatural signs was not right. Signs from God are never for sale to the highest bidder. Yes, there are those times, not only in the ministry of Christ, but in some other ministries, ministries of the prophet. We think of Elijah, the first of the great prophets in particular. When God supernaturally broke in and gave healings and gave some wonderful things that were, were like accreditations or credentials that this messenger speaks for me because he works by my power. That's what miracles are for. They're nearly always in the Bible to accredit the message of a divine messenger. And Jesus says when these people demanded it, having no intention of believing when they saw it, he said a perverse and a foolish generation values signs. In other words, this craving for miracles for their own sake only accentuates the lack of that true faith which pleases God. For at least the last 25 years in America in various quarters of many different churches, it's not confined to only one denomination, nor is it a phenomenon just of the what we would call Pentecostal churches. There has been what some know as the signs and wonders movement. There are large seminaries that teach courses on signs and wonders, including some evangelical seminaries that once were very faithful to God's Word. And the the movement seems to say, well, God's doing something different in our day, and you ought to be looking for Him to give, in addition to the Word He's already given, certain kinds of phenomenon. It's always a little vague what exactly these are. They might be, be speaking in tongues or healings, but they're sometimes other very odd things, things that would make anyone looking upon them marvel that somebody would regard this as being from God. And yet we are a highly pictorial, sense-oriented people. And we find things like that to be very influential on us. Human beings like a show. They like to see phenomena or hear things that they've never heard and say, ah, this, this is different. 
This must be about God. But the great lesson that we see time and time again is that these supernatural signs come only to accredit or verify that the messenger is speaking from God. So it's the word that God speaks about himself that is the thing to be valued. And it is today his written word, finally, completely, his revelation of his mind to us that we are to look to and value and say, here we can see what God has to say and who God is. Scripture. Scripture itself is actually a a miracle in the way that God worked using human personalities, not violating those personalities, not taking away their idiosyncrasies and their their little quirks of who they were in, in their moment of history, and yet delivering to us a timeless word that is from God and about God. And so the Scripture says it's not by amazing phenomena that we are to look for God to speak today, but by what is called the foolishness of preaching, preaching this revealed word from God given once for all, not extraordinary fireworks, not people falling down in the aisles, God speaking in his timeless word. Most of the time, those who demand these sorts of things sooner or later come to show that their demands are are actually very agnostic, if not even atheistic. The French philosopher Voltaire wrote a long time ago, he was very open in his, in his atheism. Voltaire was a smart man, but not smart in where it counted most. He wrote one time, even if a miracle would be wrought in the open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather trust my senses than admit that there is a miracle. Voltaire said, there are no miracles and you'll never convince me. I don't care what happens right in front of my own eyes and a thousand people around me. I won't believe it's a miracle. And he simply illustrates for us that the problem with what God has revealed both in supernatural deeds in the past and in his word is not a lack of sufficient information. It's not that people cannot know what has to be known about God, but they will not admit what has already been made known. We see that time and time again with the nation of Israel. Read the book of Exodus, chock full of miracles. When God was ready to do a marvelous thing, releasing his people from Egyptian bondage, the miracles started flowing like a river in the plagues Moses was given that great ability as God's prophet. God was, and you can kind of see why. You know, here he was. Who was going to believe this guy? I'm sent from God to bring, even the Israelites had no reason to believe Moses. So God loaded him with the power of of supernatural signs, and out came all those plagues, and, and then came the parting of the waters of the sea, and the daily manna to feed people, and water springing out of a rock. Exodus is just loaded with these accrediting miracles from God. And you would think the net result would be a people, that Israelite people, so confident, so certain. We are God's people. He is with us. He goes before us. He opens the way miraculously if he needs to. He guards us. He protects us. He feeds us. Why, you would think that no people would ever 
have been so satiated with miracles as the Israelites. Well, guess what? Every time a little difficulty arose, every time a new problem came, guess what the Israelites said in so many words? Why? We haven't had a miracle in at least a day or two. I wonder if God has abandoned us. You read it. Exodus 17, 7, in a place right after the manna was first given, and it was given day after day after day, they came up against a problem, and they started to cry out and whine, is the Lord among us or not? Miracles didn't seem to help them in having an adequate faith. But let's not just pick on others. What does it take to satisfy you in the passing of the days and weeks and months of your life with God's mercy toward you and his continuing work of salvation unfolding in your life? Do you require the Almighty to bring some kind of a new startling confirmation for you, some sudden deliverance from the difficult impasse you've gotten into? Some immediate response to prayer that exactly conforms with what you demand from him? Do you ever find yourself praying, Lord, if you will just, you know, fill this in with your own personal version. Lord, if you will just do fill in the blank, then I will know you are my God and you will have my everlasting devotion the rest of my days. Don't tell me you've never prayed that prayer. It may not have come recently, but you have prayed that prayer. I have. When is the last time we simply pleaded for God and said, just do this for me, and then I will never question you again? Well, the great God of wonders of the Old Testament is still our God and our Savior. The God who gave miracles through the ministry of Jesus to accredit him is still our God and Savior. And his credentials do not need repeated substantiation before our eyes to be judged more than adequate. Secondly, as we look at Matthew 12, I ask you to see Jesus here predicting God's premier supernatural sign that will eclipse all others. He predicted it in these words, no sign is going to be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Plainly, he's saying the bodily resurrection of Jesus would be God's all-time great miracle accomplished in the framework of world history. And it's as if he says, when you've seen this one, when this has been accomplished, you won't need anything else. It will be more than adequate. One thing we see here is that Jesus took the Old Testament seriously. There are plenty of people who love to scorn the Bible and say, oh, come on, you know, you don't really ask me to believe that Jonah was all that time inside a huge fish and came out alive. You don't believe that, do you? The Bible doesn't report that as a parable. It reports it as straightforward history, and that's the way Jesus accepted it. And he raised up this true event of Jonah the prophet, who himself was receiving some judgment from God for his disobedience, who emerged from that situation that should have meant his death 
and went to a city finally. The reluctant prophet went to Nineveh, the city of his enemies, the city of cruel people who had captured and tortured his own people. He finally went saying, oh, I guess I've got to do what God's telling me to do. I don't want to do it, but I'm go- I'll do it anyway. And he didn't come with a good, a good word for them. He came with a word of judgment and woe and said, if you don't repent, it's the end of you. And we read in the book of Jonah that a great revival, one of the greatest revivals in all of the Old Testament, broke out as these Gentile, cruel, heartless people of Nineveh responded and bowed themselves in sackcloth and ashes and repentance before the true God. Now the message is that God is giving a sign in Jonah that is a sign of the turnaround of a life out of a watery, what should have been a watery grave to a great revival and spiritual renewal. Well, the same thing is going to come through Christ, but there'll be a difference. You see, Jonah didn't die. He was in a situation where he might have died and should have died, but he didn't die. Jesus died. And yet he emerged fully alive in his body, recognizably the third day from his stone tomb in Jerusalem. And from that event forward came his great life, breaking forth on other people and changing them, turning them around, transforming all who would repent of sin and turn to him for a life that is everlasting. Jesus was telling these disbelieving Pharisees here that his resurrection would be the final miracle that would signify God's great triumph of life, eternal life over death. But he knew, even as he predicted it, that they wouldn't believe it. Many of these same people, you remember, it's traceable for you every Easter. You know, the stories came, the soldiers reported. We just looked at this a few months ago and said, here's what happened. Soldiers, not, not credulous Israelites, soldiers of Rome reporting the open tomb and the angel and all of this and all these supernatural things, supernatural signs, just what they wanted. And what did they do? They said, well, that, goodness, we can't have this get around. We'll cover it up. We'll pay some bribes. We'll spread another story. Jesus knew exactly how they would respond. In Luke 16, 31, he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, God's revealed word, they won't even listen if one would arise from the dead. And yet here is the historic experience of Gentiles, cruel, heartless, godless Gentiles who were more responsive to the truth of God preached in Nineveh than were the very leaders, the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel who challenged Jesus to give a sign that they had no intention of being influenced by. You know, I wonder if we are all not guilty of taking the bodily resurrection of Jesus far too casually. It's so interesting. We have a whole section of hymns in our hymn book about it. When do we sing them? Basically once a year. One day a year. If I, if I brought some of those, if I brought out Jesus Christ is risen today before you in the middle of July, you'd say, what's the matter with this guy? It's not Easter. Doesn't he understand that, that doctrine's for one day in the year? Jesus is saying your hallelujahs sung on Easter are not nearly adequate. 
if you realize that this doctrine of his bodily resurrection is the capstone proving and establishing and sealing everything that God was doing in his son. Yes, of course, the cross, his death for sin there was the great thing. But when Peter preached his very first great sermon in the early church told in Acts 2, he he preached about the cross in the very presence of the people who had crucified Jesus. Many of them had been there. Maybe some of them had even shouted out, crucify him. And Peter's sermon went along and said, now let me tell you about this Jesus whom you crucified and so on and so on. And then he said, God raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of this fact. That was the theme of his sermon. And that theme continues through the whole book of Acts. Acts 17.31 has Paul concluding an epic sermon when he said, God has set forth a day when he will judge the world with justice by that man whom he has appointed. God has appointed a particular judge. We just elected, or primary elections anyway, for some judges for Lancaster County. Well, God has elected a judge. He's all appointed. He's ready to come. And if you have any doubt as to who he is, the next phrase of Acts 17.31 will tell you. He has given proof of this to all men by raising that judge from the dead. The great miracle. Without it, even the cross isn't effectual. And Jesus here goes on to say some things as he had, first of all, seen the people of Nineveh under Jonah as a rebuke to the Pharisees. There's another rebuke, and he mentions an obscure thing from the Old Testament here in verse 42 when he says that his resurrection, this wonderful sign that God's going to do, will bring him wider world fame than even the reputation of King Solomon. Now, King Solomon had the the greatest reputation in in terms of other nations knowing about him and admiring him of anybody in Israel. You might say, well, wasn't David greater? In God's eyes, David was a greater man spiritually, but Solomon was greater in the world's eyes, in wealth, in intellectual power, in the extent of the borders of his land, in the economy that flourished. I remember touring King Solomon's mines in the south of Israel years ago, and and just realizing how the economy of that land had flourished under this king. Well, so great was it that one called the Queen of Sheba is said to have come to admire Solomon. Now, this wasn't the day when you call U.S. Air, you know, and get the flight and say, I think I'm going to fly on up to Jerusalem to see this guy Solomon. The Queen of Sheba came about 1,200 miles with a royal entourage. We believe she was from the Arabian Peninsula about where the land called Yemen is today. She herself, a woman of great beauty and and glory and, you know, royal acclaim, came with an enormous group of people and made a hard journey of over a thousand miles because she had heard about this great king and came to see if he was really as wise as everyone said. Well, Jesus said people came that way to admire Solomon, but one greater than Solomon is standing right here. Now, I want you to to see the composite of something because you might not see it by yourself. There's three times in this 12th chapter of Matthew that he used this phrase, one greater than. Let me remind you what they are. 
Matthew 12, 6. He earlier has told us, one greater than the temple. I pointed that out a couple weeks ago. One greater than the temple is here. Really? Remember, the temple was the center of everything for Israelites. You told them if somebody was greater than the temple, that all by itself was enough to get you killed. Then in 1241, we've heard him today say, one greater than Jonah is here. Now he says, one greater than Solomon. Now take those phrases together. What do they mean? Jesus has claimed to be the final high priest because he's greater than their much revered house of worship. He claimed to be the final prophet because his message is more effective than the most effective widespread revival that Jonah brought. And I don't think any prophet ever had a more widespread, he may not have been the greatest man among the prophets, but in terms of visible effect, Jonah's ministry was tremendous. And then too, there was no more famous, admired king than Solomon. So Jesus has said, I'm the greatest priest. I'm the greatest prophet. I'm the greatest king. Here I stand before you today. The claims of Jesus were very bold, weren't they? And they were spoken directly to those who despised him. And yet he told these people that his resurrection from the dead would be the great Amazing work of God that would defy any contradiction and would validate everything else that he did. Indeed, in Romans 1-4, we read this, Christ Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God through his resurrection from the dead. Now, lastly, this morning, I want to give you this third point, and You won't see it printed on the text exactly, but I think it'll make sense to you. My third point would be this, that Jesus aims to move into your life with resurrection power, supernatural power. There are countless other scripture that informs us that the resurrection wasn't just something that Jesus did as a historic proof or something that only affected his life and no other's. Romans 6, 5 would be a good example where we read Paul saying there, if we have been united to Christ in his death, we certainly will also be united with him in his resurrection. It goes together, Paul said. If you trust in him as, as the Lord who died for you, then his resurrection is going to unfold for you to eternal life. Romans 8, 11 carries it Further, when he said, Paul again, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he will also give life even to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Jesus aims to move into your life with resurrection power. God intends the body, the mind, the spirit of every Christian to have a special tenant the Holy Spirit. And this divine occupant is intended to introduce you to the wonderful aspects of eternal life actually influencing you, changing you, molding your thinking, shaping your desires, regulating your behavior. Because when God's Spirit moves in, He begins a thorough remodeling of the life which He occupies.
My daughter and her husband are, are changing their house around completely. Three ground floor rooms. The, what was the dining room is becoming the den. What was the kitchen is becoming the dining room. What was the family room is becoming the kitchen. You can't quite imagine that, but I think it's going to work. That's not unlike what the Holy Spirit does in a life. He changes us. He remodels us. He works in us in such a way that the settled occupation of his peace and transforming grace becomes the prominent motivating force of that life. Now, that's the the good side. But as we close today, our our text tells us very directly that there's a negative alternative. And it's in those last few verses, 43 to 45. Maybe you, you puzzled over that as I did. You know, you look for a flow in the gospel. You look for something to have a relationship to what just went before. And you might read 43 to 45 and say, I don't get it. What does this have to do? It might have something to do with what we talked about last week. And it does, in some ways, relate to the previous portion. But it, re- it relates to this portion, too. It's not just tacked on. You see, Jesus told this little parable here about a man who, who swept his house out all clean and he fixed it up, painted it, and there was a demon living there and the demon wasn't comfortable anymore and had to flee from that nice, clean, ordered house. And then after a period of vacancy, Jesus gave in this, and again, it's a, it's a fanciful story, it's a parable, But seven new demons come along looking for a place to live and say, look at this, an unoccupied house. It's in good shape, but nobody's living there. Let's take up our abode. Now, this seems like a strange story, but it was spoken, you can see, to these Pharisees and to millions of religious, moralistic people like them who clean up their lives by a religion of morality and good behavior and think because the exterior and the paint job and everything else looks pretty good that they're right with God. But God designed the house of your life to have a tenant. And if the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is not the tenant who lives there, then every kind of unholy spirit will be able to invade the premises of your life without bothering to knock for admission or, believe me, they won't sign a lease. They'll take over. Morality and superficial religion apart from a saving relationship to God through Jesus Christ that brings his Holy Spirit as a permanent tenant in our life may be a worse fate than not even ever hearing about God and being entirely spiritually ignorant because this is implying to us that the superficially religious who are that and nothing else are like vacuums And elementary science will tell you, nature abhors a vacuum. Something will fill it. Your soul is a house intended for a special divine occupant. The greatest person who ever lived, Jesus Christ, is ready to bring into that life of yours the effects of his grand historic resurrection. Don't long for other marvels. You insult him. Don't say, do something greater to prove it to me, Jesus. He's done the greatest thing. His aim is that Easter power 
would become the controlling motive of your life. And that he himself, by his Holy Spirit, would indwell you and remain with you now and forever. Nothing in show business could be greater than that. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. It is the keystone of our arch of faith. It convinces us that all the other things are true. Thank you for witnesses who saw it in history. Thank you for the logic of proof that tell us he did really rise and that he lives today. Thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit who communicates that life to those who ask for it, who come to you humbly and seek you to be the occupant of their life. We praise you that we are not left susceptible to the emptiness and vanity of a demon-filled life. I pray, O God, that someone whose heart is completely empty today would open wide the door and in trusting faith invite you in. In Jesus' name, amen.